Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Dr. Sarah Bren, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and a mom of two whose passion is helping parents find their inner confidence and raise healthy, resilient kids. Dr. Sarah is the host of the podcast, Securely Attached, and the creator of the digital course, The Authentic Parent, Finding Your Confidence in Parenthood and the Science of Tantrums. She co-founded Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Pelham, New York, where she treats parents, children, and families. Go to drsarahbren.com to learn more and connect with her on Instagram at drsarahbren. You know, as a parent, we all have seen tantrums, deal with tantrums, and there are smart ways to deal with it and not so smart ways. We all have to find our way to do it. And in this episode, we talk about some of the understandings behind why your kids might be having tantrums so that you can make a plan with your partner, with your team, with your support to figure out your way to deal with tantrums. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Dr. Sarah Bren on, who I was on her show. And we're podcast swapping now, which I love doing. But I also love what she does, even if she didn't have me on her show. Because it's all about parenting. And today we're going to talk about tantrums and how to discipline effectively as a parent. Because it's so hard when you're in the moment. You know, I was telling uh, Sarah the story before that yesterday my daughter, the Rickster, had two accidents. And... It's frazzling when you're literally holding poop in your hand, trying <laughs> to wipe poop, not step in the poop, which I did by accidentally, um, uh, which was nasty, and still keep your cool so that you can help your kid not dysregulate as well as discipline them either during, later, after, before on how to let someone know that you have to make a poop. So this is not just big things, but small things in life. So Dr. Sarah Bren, thank you so much for showing up on the show. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? to the listeners. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name's Sarah, Dr. Sarah Bren. I am a clinical psychologist. I'm a mom of two. I've got a three-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, almost five-year-old. He's in that space where he's not really one or the other age. <laughs> um, and I have a private practice in, in Westchester, New York, where I work with parents of young kids, helping them build healthy relationships that kind of work throughout the lifespan. You know, I love, I love what you do. And I love uh, the parenting world. Um, as you know, uh, what, you know, the first question I have, what got you into that? Like out of, out of all things, why, why, you know, mental health as a profession for you and uh, what pushed you into this direction and kind of, I use this new word now, niche, not niche, <laughs> not niche. I'm just going with a third one to mess with everyone's head. Niche. <laughs> I love that. Um, it's interesting. So obviously I I got my doctorate in psychology and I started out working actually with adults with chronic childhood trauma. Um, I was doing a lot of work with in personality disorders and supporting people who have like very difficult relationships and, and difficulty regulating their emotions and having like very challenging relationships with other people and themselves. Um and the work that I do is very psychodynamic and relational, which just means we're really looking at sort of these early relationship blueprints that we make from these early experiences we have in childhood and and trying to understand how they're playing out as in, a, in adulthood by looking at the relationships we're having now. And I was I love that work. I still do a lot of that work. Um, 
But when I had my kids, when I had my first kid, I got really interested in a parenting philosophy called RIE or R-I-E. It stands for Resources for Infant Educators. And it's not really a psychological parenting philosophy. It's not clinical at all. But I was like, this feels like so aligned with the way I actually think about my work with my patients. Like, It's a lot about validating a person's emotional experience, validating your child's emotional experience, helping them name their feelings, narrating their experience with them, for them, Um, not seeing them as like, you know, an empty vessel that I must fill up and shape and morph and mold, um, but really as like a completely whole being from the minute that they're born. And my job is actually to learn who they are and have them teach me. And I just love that. And it was very aligned with the way I practiced therapy and and actually helped people who had really traumatic childhoods kind of feel safe again in relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And it occurred to me that, you know, if I could really help parents understand secure attachment and how to help children feel safe and feel um, supported emotionally and build that emotional resilience, that emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. that sense of self, as this whole being from the get-go, if I could help mm-hmm. parents do that with their kids, that maybe they wouldn't be seeing me when they're 30 <clears> or 40 <throat> in therapy in the first place, like that we could create a healthier generation of kids by working with the parents. So I really pivoted um, to working really with parents. And I mm-hmm. love I love teaching parents about how children, how they develop and how their brains work and and so that they can be sort of like confident and effective and efficient in the way that they parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to get into the, the main topic of, you know, tantrums and effective discipline for, for you, you know, transitioning into this world as a parent yourself and transitioning into the world of parenting. Um, what has been something that you feel a lot of parents have accepted or understood for a long time that, that is not the healthiest or, or the case for a lot of kids? Yeah. That's a very good question. I think one is that emotions are, some are okay and some are good and some are bad and scary. And that it's my job as a parent to kind of protect my child from certain emotions. I think that that's a myth, a pretty dangerous myth in parenthood because it can really paralyze us as parents. Yeah. And and we know actually, and I know you know this, that like mental health is not really correlated with happiness. Mental health is correlated with your ability to experience the full range of human emotions in a present and safe way Um, to not get dysregulated or avoid or shut down or disconnect from oneself when we're experiencing some of the more difficult feelings. And so Mm. if parents understand this and can learn strategies for tolerating some of their children's more difficult and and more unpleasant emotions for them, for our kids to experience, we want to protect them from those uncomfortable feelings, but then we Mm. also, we get scared of them too. And we want to turn them off and, you know, because we don't want to, we don't want to deal or we don't know mm-hmm. how to deal with them. Yeah. And yeah, so yes. that would be, I think, the place to start. I love that because, you know, I, I'm not here to call it my family. I don't therapize them. I uh, try to stay, stay back as a therapist and be a person, uh, you know, myself, not my therapy self, but wear the different hat when I'm with them. Totally. But it's a very interesting thing as a therapist and a parent helping others learn the mentality and style of parenting that I and my wife have decided for us. 
mm-hmm. based on being a therapist and, and doing the research and understanding and reading and colleagues like yourself who, you know, do amazing work to learn from. And, and also as, as a parent, as part of the family, like, Hey, this doesn't work for me. And the biggest thing that I have uh, worked on with my, with my in-laws and my, and my parents themselves has been how to deal with my daughter when she has big emotions because she's three and she's a, she's a pretty independent, sassy little lady and it's hilarious and it's fun and it's enjoyable when she's happy and it's really difficult and challenging when she's not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been like a huge challenge for me is educating the older generation, the grandparents kind of, and the aunts or the uncles of the, not the new style, but I, but what we believe is the healthier way of dealing with it. And uh, even myself, I mess up because there's like a natural thing that we've been taught growing up in certain homes of how you parent, like you yell, you scream, you're big, you're strong, you're, you know, overpowering and, or, you know, stop it and whatever it is. And that just doesn't, that doesn't work for future. It's extremely dismissed. I know I felt dismissed as a kid. So why would I want to do that to my, to my daughter? And, you know, I want to transition unless you have anything to add to the, to the main to the main topic of tantrums, right? Mm-hmm. We've all we've all seen a kid have a tantrum in Target, you know, Toys R Us that's no longer, or any other any other store that you can think of. And the first thought that I had before having kids was, "What's wrong with a parent? How come they can't control their kid?" Mm-hmm. Right? That's the first thought that runs through my mind. But now, growing up, just a little bit, having kids. The parent could do everything perfectly right, even not perfectly because no one's perfect and the kid can still have a tantrum. So can you kind of give a backdrop to tantrums themselves and maybe why or what's happening with the kids? Because to me, psychoeducation is super important. So we have a better um, compassion and understanding of people when we kind of maybe get what's going on inside. Yeah. I, I would love to. And also, before I do that, I just want to acknowledge like, oh, my God, I know that exact thing that you like that picture that you're describing of both like judging the parent before you really understand what it's like to be in that moment. But also like that being that parent that's that's sitting there in the middle of the grocery store while your child is absolutely losing it and knowing not not fearing, not worrying, knowing. but knowing that there are some people watching this right now who are literally saying to themselves, what is the matter with me? Not my kid, but me and my kid. But really, look at that parent failing. And that is so dysregulating for us. It puts us into an immediate position of threat response, and which is exactly what I'm going to talk about right now when I talk about what's happening with our child's tantrum. But this is the most important thing, is like when our kid is having a tantrum, they're having a threat response. And we as the parent, are probably often also having a threat response. And this is important to know because we have the same equipment. You know, we've got the same brain, same nervous system as our kids. And tantrums are especially challenging for parents because they're very dysregulating for us. So I'll explain a little bit about just the science of dysregulation, whether it's in our kid or in us. And I just want to jump in super quick before that. Yeah, I love the way you just put that. Because you know, this is like the third time it's happened this weekend or this week where like someone puts something in such a – something I know, but in such uh-huh. a beautiful term. We have the same – we're the, like we have the same – we're the same product. Like we're the same workings. We have the same brain. Now everyone's different, of course, and they're experienced. 
but the wiring and, and the, the way structure. that we interpret things, the structure all... is the same. So when my kid's getting upset, now I might not kick and scream on the floor. Maybe I do, depending on what it is. <laughs> but like, I get really overwhelmed and frazzled, but I'm yeah. conditioned as an adult to not express it that way. But right. I, I feel the same way. Right. Inside, like I feel uh, like, oh, like, oh my yeah. gosh, I'm going to explode. And then we look at the kid. We're like, what's wrong with this person? Like, get it right. together. And the reason why you don't kick and scream and explode, even if sometimes you do because we're human. Yeah. But the reason that most of the time you're able not to is because of your prefrontal cortex. Because you have developed as an adult the capacity to in- inhibit urges, to notice urges to label them, and to actively inhibit them. That is an executive functioning skill that does not fully develop until we're around 25 years old. That's why Mm. teenagers are notoriously bad at inhibiting impulse. (laughs) And so are toddlers, even worse, right? Like, so, so if that's the case, how do we, how do we, uh, now we're getting off topic for, not off topic. We're getting, we're jumping back and forth. If, if someone is, doesn't have the capability yet to do that skill, how do we help them learn a skill that their brain might not be able to function or actually put into motion effectively yes. even yes. though we're teaching them? So, yeah. So let's go back. Let's go back a step back because let me first explain sort of the what's structurally important, what's happening when a kid's dysregulated or when we're dysregulated. So I kind of break it down. There's like four structures of the brain and nervous system you got to know about. There's the prefrontal cortex. That's the part I was talking about with you that you can hit the brakes with it, right? It's the part of our brain that's, it's the thinking part of the brain. Um, The part of the brain that, that processes language, that has rational, logical thinking, can problem solve, can inhibit impulses. All of those like really kind of sophisticated cognitive processes live there. And our children can sometimes access them but that part of the brain is really still developing. When they're dysregulated, that part of the brain really goes offline. And what part of the brain kind of lights up when we're dysregulated or that kind of actually causes the prefrontal cortex to go offline is the amygdala. The amygdala is our brain's threat detector. And it's always on and it's always scanning the environment for danger. And if it perceives a threat, it will pull the fire alarm. And that fire alarm basically is our sympathetic nervous system. So we got the prefrontal cortex, we've got the amygdala, that's our fire alarm, our our threat detector. And then we have in our nervous system kind of like our up regulator, our fight or flight response, and our down regulator, our sort of rest digest or our parasympathetic nervous system response. So the amygdala perceives a threat, it pulls the fire alarm, our prefrontal cortex goes offline, our thinking brain goes offline, and our sympathetic nervous system or our fight or flight response launches into action that gets us ready to run for our lives or fight to the death. Basically, it's very primitive. It's like a very, it's a completely instinctual survival mechanism. And so when our kid is having a, when our kids, our child's amygdala detects a threat, perhaps you said it's time to leave the park and they don't want to leave the park. That's threatening to them. You've taken away something that they want that threat detector says, there's a danger, there's a threat to my autonomy, 
I'm pulling the fire alarm and my body goes into fight or flight and I get, my heart starts to pound and my blood starts to rush to my extremities and I lose access to my thinking brain. And I'm just in the moment in this sort of hot place. And I, because maybe I'm a child and my prefrontal cortex goes offline really easily, I have lost all control of my body in many ways. So I might hit, I might kick, I might spit, I might say, I hate you, or you're the worst parent ever, or you're not my mommy anymore. Get that one sometimes, right? Like try getting into a a critical argument with your three-year-old daughter when she says, you're not my mommy anymore. I'm like, well, actually I still am, but that's- I, I get the, uh, the one I've been recently is like, um, uh, I don't- uh, Something never, ever. Like, you're not happy, never, ever, or I don't like you, never, ever is the <laughs> right. new one. These absolutes, these extremes. It's very, very cute, but very, 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 very hard to hear. Yes, it is. And so, but here, that's very important, right? It's very hard to hear. It's very hard to experience. It's hard to witness. It's overstimulating. It's enraging sometimes. We can perceive it as defiance. We can perceive it as disrespectful. There, that, that thought, my child is disrespecting me, guess what that does? It makes my amygdala pull my fire alarm and I can go into fight or flight. And so we have this tricky situation where our child's dysregulation can create in us our own dysregulation. And then we become gasoline on their fire and it's a big mess. And so one of my the reasons why I like to teach parents the science behind what's going on in a child's brain and body when they're dysregulated is it takes the personal feeling out of it. It takes this you're doing this to me. You are defying me. You are being disrespectful to me. Uh, You are embarrassing me in this grocery store. People are looking at me and telling me and and thinking how how crappy of a parent I am. And that's flooding me with all of this shame and anger. Mm -hmm. And it's a mess, right? We just, Mm -hmm. but when we can understand, we can say, oh, my child's threat detector has just gone off. The fire alarm has been pulled. They're feeling in they are in danger response. They don't feel safe. Now, all of a sudden, what gets kicked up in me? Not so much my threat detector as much as it like I might lean in. I might yeah. say, how can I, how can I help you feel safe again? How can I name for you what's happening here? You're really angry. You don't want to leave the park right now. It's so hard to leave when we're having a good time doesn't mean I'm not going to take my kid home from the park, but I can validate that experience. I can name what's happening for them. I cannot become gasoline on their fire. I can stay sort of this calm, warm, validating, safe person for them while still taking them home from the park, right? Mm-hmm. There's, And I think this is a big thing where like respectful parenting or responsive parenting or whatever you want to call it gets a bad rap because I think people perceive that there isn't discipline or consequences or limit setting or boundaries in this type of parenting. And I don't believe that's true at all. It's a matter of how you do it and how you do it effectively by working like with your child's neurobiology um, rather than do it or don't do it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love the uh, example you gave of the park, you know, my daughter's having fun. There's no way she wants to leave. Um, and I remember when I was, you know, first getting into the parenting world and, and, uh, you know, reading the classic works of like Daniel Siegel and, you know, whole brain child, which I happen to love the perspective of just giving a, 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 just a, a foundation and backdrop to kids and the whole idea of, uh, and I used to see parents like get on their hands and knees or or crouch down and talk to their kids. 
I remember seeing my brother do that for the first time and thinking, wow, what a great parent. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a few things, one, you're getting actually on their level of perspective emotionally because you're talking to them eye to eye mm-hmm. and visually, like you can see what they're looking at, at their yeah. level. And, and some parents are like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You're going down. You should tell them that this is not happening and, you know, power and, and over them. Yeah. And I remember when I first started doing that with, uh, I call my daughter the Rickster, with Rickster, um, it, it just changed the way I, I was able to kind of calm down myself because I was seeing her at the same level versus on top of her as like, I'm the parent. Yeah. It was like a shift in my perspective of like my body language. That, and the question that I have is it's all, it's all great and all wonderful when you're able to like, oh, I see you're frustrated because this makes sense because you might be angry because whatever it is and you're naming it and you're not saying like, shut up and let's go in the car or grab them and pull them while they're screaming. But what happens when they don't calm down or listen to you when you do quote unquote, those right things of connecting and, 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 and being that calm, that calm space, they're having a tantrum and you got to go and there's places to be and you have to get to things and get away, go home for dinner or school or camp or pick up the other kids. What do you do? Yeah. And I think that this is where people get stuck, right? They're like, I'm saying all the right things. I'm following the quote unquote scripts, right? But it's not working. Why isn't it working? My kid isn't listening. And I think it's really about shifting our expectations and having really developmentally appropriate expectations for our kids in these moments. You can say all the right things. And I don't say that glibly. Like, you should say these things. If you can access the part of your brain that stores these tools in your toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. Validating our children's experience, narrating for them what's happening, speaking in this sort of calm, regulated way, right? Not not adding to the threat detector, right? Not not being a, you know, like you were saying, like if you're, think about it from a safety perspective, right? If we're, if we're looking at this from this sort of like survival mechanism, safety threat response, mm-hmm. If you're down on the ground at eye level with your child, how does that feel to your child versus if you're towering over them, speaking above them loudly and, and like sort of harshly, like how does that feel? The difference in what you're communicating from that body language, which one communicates safety and connection? Because actually we need to turn, if we want our kid to calm down, we have to help the amygdala say, ah, false alarm, no threat here. We could turn the fire alarm off, come back to safety and connection and regulation. So if we understand that that's our goal in this moment, actually, not to teach our child a lesson in this moment, not to discipline in this moment, not to help them like connect the dots and learn appropriate behavior in this moment. There's time for that. We have to do that part too. Um, But we have to do it when their prefrontal cortex is activated. Otherwise, what's the point? They can't learn unless that part of their brain is on. So you're just wasting your breath if you're trying to teach when they're screaming and crying and kicking. (laughs) Our job in these moments is just to keep them safe, number one. And two, to sort of help them feel feel seen and understood while holding the boundary. And this is where that developmentally appropriate expectation comes in. It is not, it's not appropriate for me to expect my child 
to just cooperate with me when they're dysregulated. And just because I'm doing all the right things to sort of co-regulate, share my calm with them and help them feel safe doesn't mean they're immediately going to calm down and then cooperate. And so when we set a boundary, when we say no to something, um, they don't have to be happy and they don't have to be calm for us to respectfully and responsively parent and follow mm-hmm. through on it. So for the example, to take the park example, like, and this has definitely happened to me, where I say it's time to go and I give them all of the setup, right? I say, you've got a few more minutes left. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have time to do one more thing. Then we're going to go home. We'll get to do something fun when we get mm-hmm. home. And then we'll, you know, so there's all the things, right? They do the thing. They're not coming. And I say, like, all right, you're showing me you're having a hard time. I'm going to help you get in the car now. And I pick my kid up and they lose it. They scream. They kick. They're pissed. They're totally tantruming. What I'm going to do in that moment, one, is just try to keep myself calm. I'm going to remind myself, this is my child showing me just how upset they are. This is hard for them. They are past a point of no return at this moment, and I'm just going to have to tolerate this dysregulation. So I have to just do my best to breathe myself, remind myself they're not trying to feel this way or act this way. They're out of their control right now. Stay in that compassionate, empathetic place, but pick them up and take them to the car. Kicking, screaming, it's okay. I'm not going to, so this is the thing. It's like, I'm not going to get mad at them for having the feeling or even having these behaviors, but I am going to move them through the bound. I've set the limit. It's my job to hold it. So we set Mm -hmm. the boundary. We hold the boundary. And I think that's where sometimes the breakdown happens is parents think I've set the boundary and they're not complying with the boundary. They're not actively engaging with my instructions. They're not doing the thing I told them to do. It's like, no, our job is actually to do it for them in that moment because they don't have the capacity until they are regulated again, which they will be eventually. They don't have the capacity. So we got to do it for them. I think that the, the struggle of a lot of parents is in between the set and the hold. Right, you said it doesn't happen, and that's when effective parenting breaks down, compassionate parenting breaks down, you know, aware parent, all those words yeah. that you want to use for parenting, all the healthier styles of parent breaks down in between yeah. the setting and the the holding the boundary. Yeah, it's like you know the bedtime thing, and and you know fighting back and forth. Sometimes you you set the boundary, and my daughter doesn't want to go to bed sometimes because she has FOMO. She loves playing, like. I get why she would be upset, but I'm not sitting in the room for three hours till she calms down. Mm-hmm. Right. But sometimes then we go, okay, fine. You, you can have a lollipop now, or you can have a thing. And you start showing them that. And I want to be very careful with this because I'm very anti the thought process that might come out. And I'll explain in a second. I'm mm-hmm. not very into thinking that kids are manipulative and do things on purpose to like hurt us, bother us, get things out of us. Cause the second that I think that about my kids, they're, they're screwed because yeah. I now view every one of their actions as, Oh, see, they're trying to get one up on me. So I need now to play this chess game to beat them out before they beat me out in this manipulative right. brain of theirs. No, they want things like you. They're not doing it with like a conniving evil, like in the corner. They want a lollipop. Who doesn't want a lollipop? Who doesn't want candy? Who doesn't want sweets? Who doesn't want to stay up a little longer? I know I did as a kid. So if I view them in that way, it's such a, a, an, or that it's against me, 
right? right. Like you said before, I remember when I was in the – one of the hardest things I, I, I struggle with as parents, as a parent, my wife and I, is flying with the kids, right? Because uh-huh. you're trapped in a tube. You can't take them off the plane, right, to, yeah. to, de, to de, deregulate them because you're trapped in the air. You die. Um, there's not that much space. It's very cramped and loud because of that. Mm-hmm. And everyone's getting annoyed at you, you think. It's like uh, a pressure cooker. It's it the is. worst. It is. So – there was one time when my daughter was younger and she had a hard time flying. She just didn't like it. Uh, and she would be screaming and, and fighting and whatever. And I said to my wife, I said, here's what I'm repeating in my head. You do whatever you want. I'm like, she's not doing it on purpose. She's not doing it on purpose. She's not doing it on purpose. Yes. Because if I think that she's doing it on purpose, of course I'm going to be pissed off, annoyed, frustrated, frazzled, and then interact with her in that way. But yes. if I know she's not, if I think and remind myself and know that she's not doing it on purpose, she's just struggling. Hey, I have ADHD. I get insane on a flight because I get I just don't like being trapped in a plane. Mm-hmm. So so doesn't she doesn't either. Like Yeah. That's okay. And I think like with the park thing, I think we we're worried about like the shame and being judged and looked at. But when you stick your ground, they it helps regulate the kid with consistency of I know what I'm gonna get from this parent. It's not chaotic, right? With which can create an anxious attachment, right? It's not I don't know who I'm gonna get today. Mm-hmm. I know I'm getting a consistency of compassion and care and affection. Right. And they don't have to like that you say no. And I think that's another parenting myth that my kids have to love and like me all the time. Yeah. They have to be best friends. No. No. You're there to educate and help them grow up as little beings, mm-hmm. little humans, the big humans. Right. And when we think like, oh no, their feelings are going to be hurt when I say no, good luck. Good luck. Right. And I think it's very important too, though, to remind parents that we don't have to get it right all the time. Oh, of course. Because God knows we're not going to. Oh, I mess up Like, all the time. I, you know, we, I lose it with my all kids. I definitely have been the parent that's screaming at my kids on the playground because I've totally just, I was just done. I was done. And so, like, and, you know, I like to think my kids have a secure attachment to me and feel safe with me and do trust that I, well, I mean, what I say most of the time, I also do not enforce everything that I say I'm going to enforce. I don't hold every boundary I set, right? We don't have to get it right all the time. We just have to get it right most of the time, some of the time, a good amount of the time, enough that our kids trust that we're a, a sort of steady leader for them, yeah. like that they can really, they know that most of the time we mean what we say. Yeah. And then if we do lose it, we repair with our kids. We say, yeah. we own it. We say, I'm sorry. I lost my cool. I have to work on that. Yeah. That's on me. That's not your responsibility Yeah. to keep me from getting angry. You know, I have two questions about the whole tantrums and dealing with tantrums. And we'll get into the whole effective discipline in the last couple of minutes is um, you talk about the brain being offline. How do we get it back online? Right. Yeah. How do we restart like the computer when they're totally out of whack. And that you said like that line, like there's no return, right? They lost <laughs> it. And, uh, and there's another thing also that just to, to add to your point, not really a question is one of the biggest things that I've had to readjust myself as a parent is learning to be aware of where my kid is at. So like actually looking at them, not seeing them, like being aware of their day. Did they take a nap today? How did they eat today? Did they drink enough today? I'm in Vegas. It's so freaking hot. Maybe they're a little dehydrated. They're tired. Yes. Maybe they, you know, had a rough morning, didn't sleep well the night before. All these things are humans. I know I get upset if I don't sleep well and I'm a little snippy as well. 
So if right. I look at my kid and my kid is saying, I don't want to take a bath. I want to go to bed. Right then and there, I need to listen to my child. Not say, well, I know that you need to take a bath every day because of whatever reason I might think of or believe or been told or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. You're telling you have me to figure you are out tired. Why, why you're, you have to know your why. Yeah. Why, you know your it, why? why are you sticking to those things? Why are you so stuck in those things and not flexible a little bit to see your kid who's saying, put me to bed. Or that's mm-hmm. not the time to go, no, you are taking yeah. a freaking bath. And right. then it's going to cause a ramp up, a tantrum. They're going to scream, yell. You're going to be dysregulated. You're going to be pissed off because they need to be taking a bath. And then the bedtime routine is – and the bedtime experience is going to be crappy also. Right. And it's interesting. Like you're lucky if, you're, if your kid is actually able to say, well, I'm too once. tired. I need to go to once. bed. It happened once. <laughs> <laughs> but like a lot of times they're saying that uh-huh. not in words. Yes. Right? They're – absolutely melting down, won't get in the tub, freaking out at you about who knows what else. It's not about, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to say to yourself, you have to zoom out like you're saying and say, hey, I'm really pushing the bath thing right now because I I have a belief that this is what has to happen next. And I've set this limit and I've decided that we're doing bath. I can't unsay that now. I have to hold my ground. And I am a firm believer as a parent that we are allowed to change our mind. We are allowed to say, you know what? This happens a lot with toothbrushing with me, right? My kids don't have a problem getting in the bathtub, but try to get them to brush their teeth. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's like a fight. And so <laughs> they close their mouth. like, Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to hold my child down and jam a toothbrush in their mouth. I just don't want to do that. I don't think it's going to in the long term. And this is another thing I think is really important. It's like, you've got to think about your big picture goals here. And my big picture goals in life is for my, when it comes to toothbrushing is for my children to have an understanding of oral dental hygiene and health that, that motivates them to brush their teeth on their own. And I do think that I'm going to move away from that goal. If I jam toothbrushes in their mouth and hold them down and force them to brush their teeth every single night. Sometimes if it's been a couple of days and I'm like, this has got to happen tonight, we're definitely doing this, you know, we might have to go a route that is a little bit more firm, but at the end of the day, like I also reserve the right personally within myself, pers- like my, I, I allow myself to say, you know what, you're showing me that you are having too hard of a time to do that, doing this right now. So mm-hmm. I've decided we're going to brush our teeth in the morning. Mm-hmm. That is so different than mm-hmm. saying, you know what, that's it. Forget it. I, th- I give up. Brush your own damn teeth and like yeah, storm out, the whole right? Vibe. Right. And it's like, it's, and I've felt that on the inside. I probably even said it before, but like, realistically, I know that when I do it that way, it's not as effective. Mm-hmm. It's not as effective in the long term of helping my children have this sort of healthy relationship with toothbrushing. And like, yeah. you know, I think we have permission as parents to say, you know what? I've decided we're not going to do this right now. Mm-hmm. If my kid is melting down about the bath and I'm zooming out and I'm looking at their whole day and I'm saying, you know what? I think that they are just too tired to do this right now. And we pushed it a little bit too far and now it's just melting down time. So yeah. I might say, you know what? I have decided that we're not going to do bath time tonight. It's yeah. just too hard. Yeah. And I see that. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's go get in our pajamas. We'll yeah. take a bath tomorrow. Yeah. And it's like, I think sometimes we as parents, we don't give us ourselves permission. We like kind of get into these power struggles with our kids because we believe that our authority is undermined if we change our mind. And I think how we change our mind 
how we communicate and articulate a shift in the plan mm. is important, right? So we can say, instead of sort of throwing our hands up and being like, fine, you win, I'm done, to say, you know what? I've decided this is too hard. We're going to, I'm changing the plan. Because that way I'm still driving the, the car. Yeah. You know, I'm still yeah. in charge. And, and that's the, the cutesy thing, by the way, with giving options also. Right when you mm-hmm. give kids two options, you're still picking the two options. Yeah, authentic right? choices. I love right, you're those. like, okay, so do you want to wear this or that? You're still controlling the environment, right? Yeah, your kid's not going now. Depending on your parenting style, if you want your kid to go into the drawers and just have a good time, good look at getting dressed in the morning. Um, but when you pick these these options, like I do it with my daughter with pajamas, she loves to pick her pajamas, and I go, okay, Ricky, do you want this pajama or that pajama? And she goes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, the pink one. Now she feels so empowered as a kid. She feels that she chose it, but I picked the two ones that we had in the drawer that I thought would be best for her with the temperature in the room or whatever it is or right. ease of, of of now potty training, all that stuff. Even yesterday, right? I said she had a poop. It was a poop mageddon. There was poop everywhere yesterday. She had accidents. And she was freaking out because she was so upset at herself. She's like, I'm sorry, daddy. I'm sorry. I said, it's okay. It happens, Right. Uh, and she's like, this is so yucky and disgusting. And she's screaming and she's like looking at herself and she has poop on her. She felt so bad. So yeah. I had two options. I can go, that's right. This should teach you that you have to ask daddy when to go to the bathroom and tell him. Or I said, I said, look at me. I said, look at me. We're okay. I said, look at daddy. We're okay. I got wipes. We'll clean you off in the bath. We're okay. Mm-hmm. <sighs> It's yucky, right? And she's just just mm-hmm. trying to calm down. But I was, even though inside I stepped in poop, and I'm I'm like, oh my gosh, that's disgusting! I'm freaking yeah. out because it was so disgusting. And later on at night, when she went to bed, I vented to my wife how disgusting it was that I was literally touching her poop and it was everywhere. Right. But I controlled the environment as the effective parent. Right. Because I helped her. So back to the question before: How do we get that kid back online? And how do we then start? Not in the moment when they can't but learning to educate and effectively discipline our kids afterwards yeah. or before. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's complicated. It's actually simple, but it's difficult, right? Because it requires a lot of work on our end to stay calm. But the idea is we have to turn off that threat detector. We have to help the amygdala read safety so that the prefrontal cortex can come back online. Um, and for different kids, this can take longer or shorter, and it could take different approaches depending on your child. So the, this is a process called co-regulation, and co-regulation literally means I'm like going to be your external regulation system. Your regulation system is either is offline or it's not fully developed yet, and so I'm going to step in and be, I'm going to kind of act as your prefrontal cortex for you. So I'm going to communicate safety to the amygdala. And there's lots of different ways you could do this. I have a course called The Science of Tantrums where I get into like all the sort of nuance of sort of the brain science and how to co-regulate and how to sort of what to do before a tantrum starts to sort of prevent it from being getting so hot in the first place and how to debrief afterwards so that you're teaching at the right times in the right ways. But, you know, you kind of got to figure out your child's co-regulation language. And it's going to be different for every kid. Like, because every kid's got their sort of unique nervous system um, and their unique brain. 
the structures are all there. They're the same, but the way that they dance together is going to be different. And I, and the perfect illustration of this is like my two kids, right? My son is the kind of kid that when he gets upset and he gets dysregulated, he gets very wriggly and anxious and like will laugh and run away. And it's like this like uncomfortable laughter. Um, It's not like he doesn't have these like big meltdowns. He gets like kind of like squirrely and wants to run away and hide. And to regulate him, he actually likes me to like hold him and, and offer comfort, right? My daughter, on the other hand, when she gets dysregulated, it's very explosive. She gets very dysregulated and very hot. You know, she kicks, she screams, she doesn't want you to touch her and takes her much longer to come back down to baseline. And so the way that I regulate, co-regulate with her looks very different than the way I co-regulate with my son. And so you kind of have to learn your child's language. Um, It takes a lot of just trial and error and patience and a lot of self-regulation saying to myself, like you were saying, you know, she's not trying to do this. It's not doing this on purpose. This is not what she wants to feel right now when you were on the airplane with Rickster. Yeah. Like that's the kind of thing we have to remember is my child doesn't want to feel this way. Yeah. And that helps us feel empathy towards them, which helps us stay calm. Hmm. It allows us to then share our calm, co-regulate. Yeah, and, and I think that people need to check out your course, of course, because of course, your course, of course. Uh, I feel like Dr. Seuss right there or Alice in Wonderland. But I, I think it's just so interesting because my, now my son's only six months six months old, so I don't know what he's going to be like when it comes to you know dysregulation and tantrums. My daughter is very dramatic, so she'll like <gasps> she'll put her hands in her head, her head in her hands. She'll you know hide. She'll scream. She'll and a lot of times we started doing this thing like, okay, you do your thing. Like I'm here when you need mm-hmm. you, you go, go feel your feelings. However mm-hmm. we say it, like you do you and we understand that this is really frustrating. You know, we know you want to watch the minion movie or whatever it is that she's into at the time, but, but, uh, you let us know. And when she finally goes through her stuff, she then like, you know, with her head down, waddles over, hugging a kiss. And then we kept, we get, we keep going on with our day. But yeah. I think that parents need to to learn more about themselves a lot of the times when it comes to this whole yeah. tantrum situation. Because I have felt like, you know, a couple of more, I think it was last week or a week before, where I had a client at like 9.15 in the morning and my daughter's drop off is at 8.30. And normally, plenty of time for me to, you know, come home go to the bathroom, get settled, get on the session. But she was just dilly-dallying and procrastinating, not doing anything wrong. She was eating her breakfast and enjoying it and taking her time. But I was getting so stressed and frazzled. I'm like, Rickster, like, we got to go. We got to go. It's 835. We got to go, Rickster. We got to go. And I was just ramping up Yeah. because I needed to do – it was about me. Like, I needed to yeah. get something done. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She was eating beautifully, I might add. But I had to take a moment to be aware and go, okay, one second. You're feeling some feeling, whatever it is. Maybe you're stressed about the client that's coming up at 9.15. Maybe you're overwhelmed about something that's coming up later. Whatever it might be. But take a step back. Look at your daughter. What's she doing? Nothing. Nothing wrong. She's great. Mm -hmm. So you got time. So relax. And if you need to, 
So then I said, okay, Ricky, five more minutes. She goes, okay. Two minutes later, she goes, I'm ready to go. And that was it. Right. The power of self-regulation. And I think that this is, that's really hard to do. Like, I mean, actually, I think getting out the door in the morning is probably at least one of the most common in my, like people tell me that is one of the most challenging times of the day when they have the most resistance, the least amount of cooperation, the most stress. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that it's the time that we, the parent, are usually most rushed. We have a sense of urgency. We are feeling stressed and anxious. We are feeling impatient. We need to get the hell out of here. Like, you know, we are, so then we get agitated. We get dysregulated, right? Remember, we're still working with that same equipment. Our amygdala is saying, we're going to be late. Late is our threat. We pull that fire alarm. We're in fight or flight and we're just agitated with our kids and they feel that. And so our dysregulation can be dysregulating for them. And listen, this happens. We're human beings. We have feelings. We get, we get hot. But I think like you were saying, this is a really great example of the power of awareness. Like if you notice that feeling rising up in your body, if you notice that tightness in your chest or that clenched jaw or like that, like panting, because you're like, oh my God. And you notice those thoughts. We're going to be so late. I'm not going to have time. If you can say all right, I'm feeling stressed. Naming it, in the words of Dan Siegel from The Whole Brain Child, name it to tame it, right? Like name the feeling you're having. See if you can bring that dial down a little bit. See if you can calm your physiological threat response a little bit. Tell yourself how safe you are. Remind yourself, we're going to get there. We will get there. We'll figure this out. What do I need to do to problem solve this, right? Do I give my daughter a quick warning, like a heads up? Hey, five minutes, we're going to go. So you've got access to your parenting toolbox when you can calm yourself down because Mm -hmm. it's all housed in your prefrontal cortex. It's like there's a theme here, right? Like we need access to our brains to parent effectively. Our kids need access to their brains to cooperate effectively. Yeah. It's all about kind of creating that sense of safety for everybody. You know, just to wrap up, because I could could talk to you forever, just uh... (laughs) – Sarah, I really, really appreciate all the work you do. You know, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Securely Attached. And I just want to give a shout out. You know, she has this two unbelievable courses, The Authentic Parenting, Authentic Parents, right? Finding Your Confidence in Parenthood and The Science of Tantrums. And and I think it's just worth everyone. It's going to be in the show notes to check it out because we all need help as parents. We, We can't do it alone. And the support that we have from family might not be enough. We need to learn from experts and specialists to help ourselves be better parents and better, better humans for our kids and are, are growing up, these, these little humans to be adults one day. Now, I was uh, a little insulted that you don't want them going to therapy in the future because, you know, that takes away business from me. But I get it. I get it. I don't want, you know, I understand it. I'm just kidding. Uh, but again, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show um, and really doing amazing work for so many parents and, and being, uh, you know, someone to admire in this, in this, in this field. So I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. And I so appreciate having gotten to know you. And I think the work you're doing is just amazing. Well, I guess we have something in common. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics, and really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests 
So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at the therapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at the dude therapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what make this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.